The success of your career depends largely upon how well you work with others, how effectively you present your ideas, and how persuasive you are at gathering support and agreement for them. Think about it. Every day you're faced with situations where you need to be able to persuade others. And in each of these encounters, the principles of influence are at work, whether you realize it or not. Yet the power of persuasion and influence is generally misunderstood and misused by most business people. But that doesn't have to be the case. In this program, persuasion expert Dr. Robert Cialdini will explain the principles of influence. He'll show you how to identify them in any given situation and how the principles operate so you won't throw away golden opportunities to influence others. Based on evidence from a large body of social research and on Cialdini's own three-year field study, instant influence will help you get what you ask for while ensuring that those who comply with your requests win too. So let's begin this Dartnell audio program as Dr. Cialdini explains how a little bit of artfully applied influence can make a big difference in your career. I want to talk with you about how to influence people. That's a very broad topic, of course, covering all sorts of situations that you might encounter in your life. But I want to be rather specific about it. I want to focus on influence as it occurs in the workplace. What's more, I want to talk primarily about a particular type of influence, a particular kind of influence that I will call compliance. Compliance refers to the process of getting someone else to say yes to your request. In other words, it's the science of getting what you ask for. And I don't use the term science lightly here because I will be careful to present information to you that I can back up with respected scientific research. As a result, we won't be spending a lot of time discussing my hunches, my guesses, or my speculations. Instead, we'll concentrate on the evidence. Evidence that comes first from a large body of social science research on the subject and second from my own three-year study of why people comply with others' requests in business situations. In that three-year study, I became a spy of sorts, infiltrating as many influence professions as I could get access to. Professions such as sales, fundraising, advertising, marketing, and negotiation. I learned from the inside how people can be led to say yes to requests. Occasionally, I ventured outside of traditional business circles to find out how other influence professionals generated yes responses. I looked to see what political lobbyists did and what cult recruiters did to produce their own brand of powerful influence. I even examined the practices of the con artists of our society to learn what they did to get people to go along with their wishes. And through it all, I watched for commonalities, for parallels, figuring that if I could identify which psychological principles were being used successfully by individuals selling insurance and industrial machinery and computer equipment and portrait photography, and if these were the same principles being used successfully by advertisers and negotiators and fundraisers and recruiters and lobbyists, then I would know something very important. I would know that these must be the most powerful and flexible principles of influence available because these are the principles that work across the widest range of professions, practitioners, and influence opportunities. Well, what are the psychological principles I uncovered in my research? 
What are these universal principles of influence that emerged from my study? To my surprise, I counted only six. And we'll spend the majority of our time examining just what they are, how they work, and how you can use them in a powerful yet completely ethical way. But briefly, the principles are, first, reciprocity, second, scarcity, third, authority, fourth, consensus, fifth, commitment and consistency, and sixth, friendship and liking. Now, I want to be clear about one thing. Just because I think that these are the most effective principles of influence doesn't mean that everybody uses them in the most effective way. Quite the contrary. As I see it, they are used effectively by only a fraction of those who could stand to gain from them. In fact, I have identified three classes of influence agents, people who engage the power of the six principles with varying degrees of success. There are bunglers of influence, there are smugglers of influence, and there are sleuths of influence. Bunglers, smugglers, and sleuths. Let's take each in turn. Bunglers of influence regularly fumble away the chance to benefit from the six principles because they either don't know what the principles are or they don't understand how they work. As a result, bunglers consistently blunder away opportunities to harness the force of the influence process in profitable ways. One of the things I most want to do in this program is to show you how to avoid the bungler's role in the future so that when you come upon an influence situation that has certain of the six principles buried in there with their powerful engines running, you won't walk right by, oblivious to their presence. Now, unlike the bunglers, smugglers of influence know quite well what the six principles are and how they work, but they import the principles illicitly into situations where the principles don't naturally reside and where the principles do not, therefore, steer people correctly about when to say yes. Smugglers trick others into complying by counterfeiting one or another of the six principles of influence that people normally use as guideposts. An example might be when a computer salesman pretends to be an authority on a piece of equipment that a customer is interested in so that the customer will buy from him. The consequence is a very seductive, short-term type of success for the salesman. Because authority works as a principle of influence, smuggling it into a situation can often have direct effects. The initial result is that, typically, only one person will benefit, the smuggler, because the customer will have been led to a choice by someone who's not actually an authority on the matter. The long-term result, however, is that the influence agent will lose in a bigger way than his target. That's certain to be true if, after the sale, the customer catches on to the salesman's smuggling and vows never to do business with that individual or his company again, while warning friends and business associates to do the same. But it will be true even if the customer never learns about the dishonesty. Think about it because he or she has been given a bum steer by the phony authority, it's likely that the computer equipment will prove to be a less than satisfactory purchase, making the customer naturally reluctant to return to that person or that business in the future. Finally, the smuggler is destined to lose in one more way, in self-image. 
Individuals who intentionally and continually take the low road to influence have to change the way they view themselves. They have to assign themselves less integrity, less honor, less moral self-regard. These psychological costs of the smuggler's approach should not be minimized. A job that eats at an individual's self-respect because it involves manipulating and deceiving others is not the kind of job people relish going to in the morning. In fact, it's the kind of job that makes them want to come in late, leave early, call in sick, and ultimately quit. These are hardly the motivations on which long-term productive careers are built. Lastly, there are sleuths of influence who are more knowledgeable than bunglers, more ethical than smugglers, and overall more successful than either. They approach each influence opportunity as a detective would, looking to bring to light only those principles that are truly a part of the situation. By focusing solely on those powerful, enlightening principles that exist naturally in a situation, the sleuth informs the influence target of the genuine decision triggers that are present there. Of course, the more of the big six influence triggers the sleuth can accurately point to, the greater the chance that the target will comply. Suppose, for example, that the marketing manager of a company wanted to convince the overly cautious, tight-fisted company president to okay a large budget for a program that, if enacted quickly, offered a rare opportunity to give the company leadership in an attractive market niche. Let's suppose further that she was recently informed that the company's expert consultants were all in agreement that the proposed move was a good one. What's more, each of the other managers she had talked to within the company shared her view that the time to strike was now or this excellent opportunity could be lost. If, in her presentation to the president, she failed to highlight the components of authority and scarcity and consensus that were true features of the situation, she would not only be fumbling the chance for effective influence, she would be serving her influence target poorly in the process. To make the best decision, her boss needed to be aware of, to be exposed to, all of the influence principles that genuinely applied. If, by missing the chance to be a sleuth of influence, she bungled away her best opportunity for success, she would simultaneously bungle away her boss's best opportunity for success. This overlap between the success of the sleuth of influence and the success of the target of influence operates in another way too, a way that is the real beauty of the approach. The detective route works to the benefit of both parties involved. If, when trying to persuade others, you point them toward the triggers that will guide their decisions correctly, those people are going to do well. As a consequence, they're going to be willing listeners when you return later with other products and services and ideas. You will have laid the groundwork for a long-lasting influence relationship with these people, a relationship that will grow with each successive, mutually rewarding interaction. It's no wonder that I'm so high on the sleuth's approach to influence. It's the one that leads to the win-win arrangements that marketing and management experts are always talking about these days. It's the one that generates the best kind of influence, influence that is effective, ethical, and lasting. Now, before we get off the topic of the most effective agents of influence, let me share with you the single thing in my study that surprised me most.
wouldn't you think that those who are most skilled at getting others to say yes to their requests would spend most of their time structuring those requests? To the contrary, the most accomplished influence pros spend as much or more of their time structuring what they do or say just before they make the request. Often, it's not the request itself that causes people to say yes, it's what goes immediately before it. In other words, the context in which a request is placed can be every bit as effective as the request itself. The real experts of influence work hard at arranging to place each request they make in a favorable psychological context for compliance, a context where people are automatically inclined to say yes. Now, I know that the term psychological context may sound a bit vague and mysterious, so let's make the meaning clear with an example. There is a principle in the psychology of perception called the contrast principle, which governs the way people experience things that are presented to them one after another in succession. For instance, if I had you pick up something heavy, let's say a chair, and then I had you pick up something light, let's say a pencil, you would experience the pencil as lighter than if you hadn't lifted the chair first. In contrast to the heavy object, the light one seems lighter than it actually is. Now, the interesting thing and potentially useful thing about the contrast principle is that it doesn't only work for perceptions of weight. It works for anything you can name. It works for brightness. It works for loudness. It works for the physical attractiveness of the people you're talking with at a cocktail party. If you're talking at a party to some knockout member of the opposite sex and some average-looking member of the opposite sex comes along to join you, you will see that person as less attractive than you normally would. Think of the implications. We can change the way others perceive anything by what we structure for them just before they experience that thing. I bring this idea to my students every year with a little classroom demonstration. I have a student come to the front of the room and sit in front of three buckets of water. One is hot, one is cold, and the one in the middle is at room temperature. The student is told to put one hand in the cold bucket of water, one in the hot, and leave them there for a few seconds. Then he is asked to plunge both hands simultaneously into the bucket of lukewarm water. When he does, you always see the same look of astonishment on his face because the hand that was in the cold water now feels like it's in hot water, and the hand that was in the hot water now feels like it's in cold water. It's exactly the same water. It's at room temperature. The only thing that's changed is what went just before, what went first. Now. How can this concept be applied to a business situation? The Brunswick Corporation is involved in the manufacture and sales of recreational equipment, including billiard tables. Their retail sales managers were concerned about a problem they were having in their billiard table sales outlets. Although table sales were strong, the price of the average table sold was down pretty low in the range of tables they offered. The sales managers were concerned that customers were not buying the higher quality tables they would be most happy with in the long run, and that the company and the retailers were not moving enough of these higher priced units. For someone who knows how the contrast principle works, it wasn't hard to figure out how to solve this problem. 
Frequently, a prospect would come into a store and the following kind of exchange would occur with a salesperson. Hi, can I help you? I hope so. I'm interested in a billiard table for my home. Well, I'm sure we can find something you'll like. We have uh, quite a variety of tables to choose from. Uh, do you know the type and price of table you're looking for? I'm not sure, actually. Okay, uh, then let's just start here with our basic no-frills model and work our way up the line until we hit one that you think meets your budget. Can you see how that approach is a prescription for low price tag sales? By the time the customer gets to the middle of the line, those tables are going to seem pretty expensive, maybe too expensive, in contrast to the very basic model. Compare that to a second approach in which the salesperson shows the top of the line first and then works down. By the time the customer gets to the middle of the line now, those tables are going to seem relatively inexpensive. Fortunately, you don't have to take my word for it. A small experiment was tried at a representative store to test the idea. During one week, all customers were shown the lower end of the price range first and then encouraged to consider the more expensive models, the traditional trading up approach. During the following week, however, the reverse sequence of starting at the top and moving down was employed. Although an equal number of tables was sold in each time period, the average price of a sale during the second week was $450 greater than in the first. Same line of tables, same prices associated with them, the only thing that changed was what went first. Now that you understand some of the overall guiding forces involved, we're going to get down to specifics, namely the six major principles of influence. We'll start with the principle of reciprocity. Whether you realize it or not, the principle of reciprocity is ingrained in you and in everyone else as well. It has a tremendous effect on virtually every decision you make, business-related or otherwise. Mmm, good suggestion to come down here, Jim. They serve a nice lunch. Yeah, they do. The place went downhill a bit last year when the chef left, but they rehired him back, and now it's as good as ever. Mm, well, it was a good call, but I guess I'd better be getting back. Let's get the check. Waiter, could you uh, bring me the bill, please? No, you got it when we went to that Italian place last time. Let me get it this time. No, 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 it's on me. The Italian place was the time before last. You picked up the last one, remember? Here, waiter, I'll waiter, take that. Waiter, no, 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 no. Bring it over here. Sound familiar? The interaction in that little scene is hardly unusual. I'm sure that something like it happens thousands of times every day, and I guess that you've found yourself in a similar kind of exchange more than once. But despite the fact that this type of scene is very common, there is something strange about it. According to basic economic theory, it shouldn't happen. Because we're supposed to be principally concerned with maximizing our material self-interest. In other words, with accumulating and possessing hard resources and money. What's going on here? Obviously, there is something at work besides simple economic principles. To figure out what it is, we need to put on our Sherlock Holmes caps and solve a different mystery. At least it was a mystery to me when a few years ago I came across a newspaper article reporting a gift of $5,000 of humanitarian aid that went between the countries of Mexico on the one hand and Ethiopia on the other. Now, at the time of this article, and perhaps still today, Ethiopia could fairly lay claim to the greatest need, suffering, and privation of any country in the world. 
Its people were dying in agony by the hundreds, daily, of sicknesses and starvation. Its relief agencies were crying out to the rest of the world, begging for money, medicine, food, and supplies. I wasn't surprised then that $5,000 in aid was being sent between Mexico and Ethiopia. I was shocked, though when I read further into the article to learn that the money had not gone to Ethiopia at all, but had gone in the other direction from Ethiopia to Mexico to help the victims of the Mexico City earthquake that year. Well, how do you explain that? The only way I know is through the first major principle of influence, the first major decision trigger that I want to talk about, the rule for reciprocation which says that you are obligated to give back to others the form of behavior that they have given to you. If someone gives you a gift, you should give that person a gift. If somebody invites you to a party, you should put that person's name on your guest list when you throw a party. If someone does you a favor, you should do that person a favor in return. That is so because of something we've all been trained in since childhood. You do not take without giving in return in this society. Actually, at least in our country, the idea goes back even farther than that. The early pioneers and settlers had to help each other. It was a matter of simple survival. When the farmer down the road needed to get his barn up before the winter came, everyone pitched in to help. You went down there to lend a hand, knowing that next year, if you needed to get help getting your crops in, everyone would come to help you out. And it wasn't just the farmers who did this, this was the attitude of society in general. So that idea that we all learned in childhood has a long tradition behind it. You do not take without giving in return. If you do, we have names for you. Welsher, taker, ingrate. These are labels we don't want others to apply to us, and they're labels we don't want to apply to ourselves either. As a result, we will go to great lengths to make sure that we give back when we receive. This rule is so strong that it even covers the things we get from people we don't know. Let's take an example that if you've traveled in airports of this country, I'm sure you recognize the Hare Krishna Society is an ages-old religious organization. You can trace their roots back to the Indian city of Calcutta, ancient city, but they have a much more recent history here in the United States beginning with one center in New York City in 1968, when, if you remember what the Krishnas looked like in 1968, it was very different from the way they look now. They set up their center, and to fund their organization, they would move down a city street in groups, chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, dressed in loose-fitting robes, leg wrappings, bells, beads, chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, until they came to a passerby, they would stop this person and they would say, would you give a donation for our society? Well, the average New Yorker <laughs> took one look at this motley crew and said, get out of here. The Krishna's solution was brilliant. They hit on a way to make a request in which a person who doesn't even like the requester still feels compelled to comply with the request. Now, before they ask for a donation, they give you something. 
It can be a book, a magazine, but in the most cost-effective version, it's a flower. They approach you in a public place, airports are a favorite, and they pin a flower on your lapel, or they push a flower into your hand. And if you say, no thanks, I don't want this, here, take it back, they respond, oh no, that is our gift to you. However, if you would like to give a donation for the good works of the society, that would be greatly appreciated. I watched the Kreisnas operate in O'Hare Airport for an entire day, and what I saw was a remarkable testament to the power of the rule for reciprocation. People who didn't want this flower, who didn't ask for it, still didn't feel that they could just walk away with it without giving in return. So what they did, not all of them of course, but many of them, was to reach into a pocket or a purse, come up with a couple of dollars, and give them to the Krishna solicitor. And then they felt free to walk away. I followed a number of them to see what they did with the flower, and it was always the same. They threw it in the first waste container they came to. Isn't that interesting? This thing they just bought, just spent good money for, was jettisoned at first opportunity. What sense does that make? Well, it doesn't make any sense, once again, from the standpoint of basic principles of economics. It only makes sense when we realize that those people had not really bought the flower. They didn't want the flower in the first place. But what they had done was to buy their way out of a rule that says, you don't take without giving in return. It was worth good money to them not to have to suffer the feelings of debt and social discomfort associated with breaking that rule. As it happens, the Krishnas understand very well that the tendency to repay gifts and favors applies even to those gifts and favors we don't want. I know that to be true because while I was watching the Krishna solicitors work in O'Hare, I would occasionally follow one of them who was sent to resupply the cache of flowers they were using. Well, the supply route turned out to be a garbage route. The Krishna would make a tour of the trash containers in the airport to pick out all those discarded flowers and cycle them back through the donation request process again. No telling how many times the same carnation would produce a profit. Here's something else I saw that was interesting. Some airport visitors who received a flower would try to escape the reciprocity rule by throwing the flower to the ground. If the Krishna would not accept it back, they'd say, okay, if you won't take it, I'm throwing it on the ground here. I don't have it now. I haven't kept it. It's not in my possession anymore. And then they felt free to walk away. Well, you know what the Krishnas are doing in some cities to counteract that strategy? They're now pinning small American flags on the lapels of passers-by because they know that Americans won't throw their flag on the ground. They want us locked in the jaws of that rule because in the context of obligation, people simply say yes. Notice something else about the Krishna's approach to compliance in all of this. It's clearly a smuggler's approach. They import a feeling of obligation into a situation where it doesn't naturally exist so they can exploit it for one-sided benefit. They get money, which they do want, and their targets get flowers, which they don't want. 
However, as is always the case with smugglers of influence, the self-defeating, long-term consequences of their tactics have begun to take over. Suppose you were burned by one of the Krishna solicitors, or suppose you had merely seen or heard about somebody else being burned. What would you do the next time you saw a Krishna coming? You'd go the other way, right? Or you'd prepare to reject or deflect the approach. Well, that's exactly what's been happening lately. Nobody will take a flower anymore. Once people are exposed to their tricks, they won't deal with the Krishnas any longer. And the proceeds from the Krishnas' fundraising activity are plummeting. But that's to be expected because eventually, consistent smugglers are recognized for what they are. And once caught, their chances for further profitable dealings with an individual go right out the window. Fortunately, the use of the reciprocity rule is not limited to the smugglers of our society. As detectives of influence, we can find it existing naturally in many work situations. It's just waiting for us to uncover and then harness its power in ways that lead to continuing influence. For example, good before and after the sale service is the kind of thing that a sleuth of influence can use to increase customer loyalty. The customer feels that it's only right to repay that kind of service with continued business. And we must not underestimate the strength of the desire to repay. When I go into a store where the people work hard to serve me well, I feel I owe it to them to come back by the reciprocity rule. They've done something good for me. I should do the same for them. They haven't just attracted my future business by their actions. They've come to deserve it. Of course, if we do engage the force of the reciprocity rule by providing good service, everybody wins. The customer wins, the salesperson wins, the store manager wins, the owners win. Win, 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 win. Beautiful. A similar kind of everybody wins arrangement that is based on the reciprocity rule can be seen in the approach that an acquaintance of mine uses in her sales position. She sells radio advertising time on the station she works for to a large range of clients. My friend has the reputation of being the best radio advertising salesperson in the city. She's frequently being offered attractive positions at rival radio stations and is always rising to the top of the sales staff at whichever station employs her. When I asked her how she did it, she described one thing that made me recognize her as an expert detective of influence. Because she has clients in a variety of businesses, she is always on the lookout for any business leads that she can pass on to them. If, for example, she learns through her contacts in the food industry that a new supermarket chain is thinking of moving into town, she instantly calls all of her clients who could profit from that information. The construction companies, the realtors, the banks, the advertising firms. Any of her customers who can send out salespeople to try to get the new supermarket chain's business before their competitors do. She reports that the gratitude that she gets is immediate and that the obligation her clients feel to her is long-term, especially among those who actually land the chain's account. They do everything they can to return the favor by giving her all of their business that they can possibly justify. The same sort of reciprocal arrangements apply virtually everywhere. If you're a manager, you know the value of having positive attitudes and personal relationships in the workplace. Now, 
Think of the advantages of understanding the rule for reciprocity in the achievement of those goals. Because people give back what they've received, it means that you can increase the level of whatever you want from coworkers and employees by giving it first. If you want information, you provide it to them first. If you want to create a feeling of trust, you offer it first. If you want to foster a cooperative attitude, you show it first. By acting first, you get to set the tone for the type of workplace relations you want. Let's take information sharing as an example. There are experts who argue that we have now gotten to the point in modern business where an information edge is the single most valuable advantage we can possess. What's more, it's true that in any business office, a manager will be able to plan, execute, and complete tasks more successfully to the degree that he or she has access to the necessary information. The research tells us that there is a straightforward way for the manager to get that necessary information by providing the amount, the level, and the quality of information he or she wants. The manager will get the amount, level, and quality of desired information in return. And it will flow naturally. No need for any arm twisting or surveillance. It will flow naturally because, as the research clearly shows, information disclosure is a reciprocal thing. And of course, when the necessary information is being sent and received in an office, everybody wins, particularly the manager. Now, I'll be the first to admit that while the reciprocity rule will work naturally in the great majority of cases, there may be certain people who don't seem to want to pay back what they've gotten from others. Those people may need a little extra nudge before they play by the rules. Let's take an example. Suppose you're a manager who's been pretty easygoing with one particular employee who often needs to take time off for personal reasons. Maybe he's had to pick up his wife at the airport or to take a child to the dentist, things like that. Yet, whenever you ask this employee to give you some extra time when you need it by working through lunch or coming in early or staying late, he invariably refuses. Now, one way to handle this would be to stop granting this person any more time off. But that could lead to a problem if he simply doesn't recognize that all you're asking for is a fair trade. He might see himself as entitled to a little free time for personal business, but may not see you as entitled to any of his time beyond working hours. So, you may have to make the fairness of the trade clearer for this type of person than you would for most people. The next time he asks to leave work an hour early for some unexpected personal reason, you may want to say, sure. Glad to let you have an hour for something unexpected because I know how important it is for me to be able to count on you to give me an extra hour when something unexpected comes up here. This way, without being unkind, you've let him know that helpfulness, like everything else, is a two-way street. Okay. At the beginning of this program, I said that, in addition to discussing how you can use the big six principles of influence, we would also cover how you could avoid falling into influence traps where these principles can be used against you. Let's take a look at how easily you can be trapped into making a poor decision out of a sense of personal obligation that springs from the reciprocity principle. Suppose you're a manager in charge of a good-sized department where you work, 
and for some reason you're going to need a ride to and from the office for several days. Maybe your car's in the shop for a week or something like that. So you ask one of the people working under you for a lift because you know that he has to go only slightly out of his way to pass your house. And this guy says, sure, I'll be glad to do it. Everything goes smoothly that week. He leaves home a little early each day to pick you up and gets home a little later each day to drop you off. He even hangs around work for an extra half hour one day to accommodate your need to clean up some paperwork before you leave. Now, ten days later, it's time for you to fill out the performance evaluations for your department and you come to this guy's name. What's more, you know that he's one employee being considered for a promotion to a better job with a higher salary. It's between him and another slightly more qualified member of your department. What are you going to do? Well, if you're human, you're going to feel the pressure of the reciprocity rule. You're going to feel the pull of that nice favor he did for you, of that unfulfilled obligation, and you're probably going to give him a higher rating than he actually deserves. That's the kind of trap people fall into all the time, making a poor business decision based on emotional considerations like personal obligations. How do we avoid making that kind of mistake in this instance? I think we do it by recognizing exactly what it is that the reciprocity rule says we should do and should not do when repaying favors. Remember that the rule says that we are obligated to give back to others the type of behavior they have given to us. To me, that means if someone does us a personal favor, we owe a personal favor in return. We shouldn't allow ourselves to be trapped into providing a business favor instead. So, in the ride-sharing example, there would be something you could have done first to free yourself from the power of the rule when it came time to fill out the performance evaluation forms. Before you ever got to the point of filling out those forms, you could have repaid the gracious personal favor you had received with a gracious personal favor of your own. Of course, the exact nature of the return gift is not important. It could have just as easily been a pair of tickets to a play or sports event that you know that your employee would enjoy. The important point is that in the workplace, you remember to repay personal favors with personal favors and to reserve business favors for business favors. Mixing the two usually leads to bad business decisions. So far in our discussion of reciprocity, we've talked about replacing smuggler strategies with sleuth strategies. Now I'd like to talk about how to do the same thing for the bungler's approach. I've noticed that far too often people fumble away legitimate opportunities, priceless opportunities for influence, simply because they didn't realize how they could use the altogether healthy reciprocal exchanges that are an inherent part of their relationships and their business lives. Here's a situation I'll bet you found yourself in many times. Let's say you get a call from somebody you work with a lot in your job. It could be someone in another department of your company, it could be a supplier, but for the moment, let's say it's a distributor of your product that your company depends on. And let's even say that it's a distributor who hasn't been all that dependable in the past. So this distributor calls you up to ask you for a favor, a big favor. And you agree to help by doing whatever has to be done. 
Maybe you have to drop what you're doing and perform an analysis of some complicated data. Maybe you have to come in early and stay late for several days. Maybe you have to drive way across town to personally pick up some paperwork. Whatever it is, you get it done. Now, a day later, the distributor calls you up to thank you. And how many times have you heard yourself bungle away that crucial moment, that priceless, that powerful influence instant by saying something like, Ah, it's no big deal, just part of the job. Or, Oh, don't think a thing about it. I'd do it for anybody. Or, Hey, don't worry about it. That's what I'm here for, right? Oh, it pains me whenever I hear something like that happen. There you are with one of the most potent triggers of influence of our society in your hands and you fumble it away. Remember now, this is a trigger of influence that you've come to possess fairly. You haven't smuggled it in. You haven't counterfeited it. You haven't fabricated its presence in the situation. You've earned it. And here's something else. By not participating in the power of that moment, you do everyone a disservice. That's so because our society, our organizations, our relationships work better when those who do genuine favors are rewarded with opportunities for genuine favors in return. Think about it for a minute. If people who did favors for others never got anything back, they'd be less inclined to do favors in the future. As a consequence, pretty soon, nobody would be doing anybody favors anymore. That would be a sorry state of affairs in any group. So, in order for the system to work properly, we have to be able to acknowledge and accept what we deserve. But here's the trick. We have to be able to do so gracefully. All right, fine. But how do you do that when the distributor, or anyone for that matter, calls you up to say thanks for the break-your-back favor you just did? Well, one thing you don't do is say, yeah, and you owe me one now, buster. That's sure to produce nothing but resentment and resistance. Instead, here's what I think you should say after that individual thanks you. You say, listen, you'd do the same for me. You'd do the same for me. With that one statement, you will have accomplished a lot. First of all, you won't have made the blunder of dismissing or diminishing what you've done. And you won't have overblown it either, or made it a cause for friction between the two of you. But you will have recorded the fact that you indeed did perform that sizable favor. And you will have sent the message that you know the recipient of your favor to be the kind of person who plays fairly by the rules of our society. And that means, of course, that when you need a big favor, that person should say yes to you. Just communicating that message will make all the difference. Now, the next time you need a big favor from that distributor, you've got an ace in the hole. Maybe you need to get pushed ahead a few pages toward the front of their catalog. Maybe you've suddenly found out you won't have enough product to fill their latest order, and you need a couple of extra days, even though you're contractually obligated to deliver on time. You can go to that distributor you helped, that person whose obligation you did not lightly dismiss, and you can expect him to give you the vital yes or the help that you need. Here's something besides. After you've used your you do the same for me line, 
you can wait a long time to call in your favor. How do I know that? I know that by solving the mystery of the $5,000 of Ethiopian aid we puzzled over at the beginning of this program. I consider myself a social scientist. And if there's one thing that gets me going, gets my motor running, it's some aspect of human behavior that I can't explain. I feel driven to find out the answer. Well, that's what happened to me after I read the newspaper account of the gift of humanitarian aid sent by the Ethiopian Relief Agency to the victims of the Mexico City earthquake. I got physically agitated. I felt that I had to figure out the cause of this strange behavior. So I went to the library to see if there was anything else that had been written about the gift. As it turned out, there was a journalist who had the same reaction as I had had about it all. And he went to the leader of the Ethiopian Relief Agency and asked the crucial question. Why, when your own people are suffering miserably, dying in agony for the want of food and medicine, would you take $5,000 of your resources and give them to Mexico? And the answer came back clearly, because in 1935, when Italy invaded Ethiopia, Mexico helped us. Fifty years later, transcending the greatest national need, privation, and suffering in the world, the rule for reciprocity triumphed. For those of us who want to maximize our effectiveness as agents of influence, this is not something to be bungled away.